Our striving is not in vain because we do not count in our own strength. We hear the word of the Lord and the strength that is there in his word. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with the dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles. Turn to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul has just spoken to the role of the overseer, and now he continues on with the role of the deacon. Deacons likewise, in verse 8 and following, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we ask for your blessing here upon this time as we seek to understand your word. Grant to us wisdom and understanding, not only for our own benefit, but ultimately, Lord, for the furthering of your kingdom in our hearts and through this place we pray in your son's name. Amen. I believe that I have probably mentioned in the past that my father was a land surveyor. Uh, so he spent much of my youth going out into the woods, and there were certain pots, spots of time where the job was sufficient such that he could take his son with him. So I went with him on a couple of different times where we went into the woods on a project. I would be carrying the equipment. This one particular time, we're walking along following a, a line of fence, that's um, a wire fence that it was marking a, a border line. We were carrying some equipment deep into the woods. And my father was talking to me about the fence. And like so often happened, this was an adult sharing a lot of useless information to me. And so I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. And then my father said, okay, I want you to get on the other side of the fence and put down the equipment over there. And I said, okay. And I walked up to it and I grabbed the fence intending to swing my leg over it. My dad was telling me that it was an electric fence. 
and he was explaining what all that was about. And I didn't know why it had any importance to me until I got zapped. Once I got zapped, then I suddenly said, oh, what my dad was saying was kind of important to me. There's a chance that as I read this chapter, particularly after some of the things in which we've talked about, if you've been with us over the past couple of, of weeks, we've been talking through, working our way through 1 Timothy, we've been seeing the importance of upholding the faith and how important it is that the church be a strength of support for the truth and how crucial the truth is in understanding God's plans in this world. We talked about the importance of worship and what worship is supposed to look like and the gender roles that take place in worship. All these things that every day, every week will touch your lives. So there's some extent where we begin to read this section that talks about overseers and deacons and if you're not really involved in the operation, the day-to-day -day operation of the church here, it could be easy to you to think, well, okay, that's important for someone to know all this material, but let's face it, this isn't gonna help me to raise my children in an increasingly godless society. This is not gonna talk to me about how I am supposed to live my life and how I pursue godliness it's not gonna help me with my everyday interactions with my neighbors and my coworkers. This isn't necessarily gonna help give me insight into the way in which I am supposed to worship the Lord and my Savior. All the things that are crucial and that are everyday concerns for you. So you might tend to think, well, this passage isn't that important until, of course, you get zapped. And then suddenly it's like, oh, this text does have some meaning. I often encourage you to read a passage of scripture or to go home afterwards and to follow up on something. And I suspect some of you do it, and that's great. Some of you don't, that's all right. Um, I'm a little tentative suggesting this one because this passage is pretty brutal. But if you have time sometime this week, and parents use discretion with this with your children, I'd encourage you to go back and read the last five chapters of the book of Judges. The last five chapters of the book of Judges, you have rampant idolatry, you have a brutal murder, you have gang rape, you've got civil war, you've got genocide, you've got sexual exploitation, you've got human trafficking, you've got everything that is horrific. You are following a society that is collapsing religiously, morally, ethically, politically, and civilly. Those last five chapters of Judges are just brutal to the core. And they share one thing in common. Over and over again, the, those five chapters echo this line. At that time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, my guess is that there are some of you here that think, hey, we are a community that is gathered together under the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Every person I know in this room is basically a good guy, good girl. There's, there's, there's a lot of positiveness that is happening here. There's a lot of, there's dependence, there's faith, there is a desire to do that which is good. The government of the church, the way a church runs, should be kind of less important because we are a redeemed people. We stand under the authority of God. We don't really need a church government. We can just do what is right in our own eyes. The Bible has a much more realistic picture. 
of the depravity of sin and what happens in our eyes. Those sections in the book of Judges don't tell us that everybody was eager to do things uh, wrong. There was no king of Israel, so everybody did whatever they wanted. No, that's not what it says. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And yet this place collapsed. Israel collapsed as a nation. Why? Because leadership is important. And you may not think so until you get zapped. So Paul writes to Timothy about this very thing. He moves from the discussion of the truth of the gospel to a discussion of what worship is like to a discussion of what the church, how the church functions. How should church government look like? And I, I need to step back here for one quick second. Many of you know how our church functions. Some of you may not. Our church functions through a body of elders. And elders are those folks that are set, a, set apart by the church so that they can provide some leadership or guidance for the church. And that's a body of elders. Here we have 14 elders that are functioning alongside of me. I make the 15th elder. So five, 15 of us together function in that way. We also have the office of the deacons, and the deacons serve in leadership positions in particular roles. We also have an office of the trustees that function in certain roles. So we have officers, we have leaders that kind of lead and give direction to the ministries of the church to the directions in which we go, how we're gonna spend money, helping the staff and orienting the ways in which we're supposed to do uh, the kingdom work in which God has called Hebron to do. That's the way we function, and a lot of that comes from an understanding that Paul writes to Timothy right here in this passage. So let's take a look at it in verse one. Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay, the noble task here means he desires a good work. This idea of, of leadership is not a burden. It is a burden, but it's not a burden. It's not a, it's not a necessary evil. It's not something that simply has to happen. According to Paul's writing here, it's a noble task. It is something that is honorable and respectable. So keep that in your mind as we look at the word overseer. He, an overseer des, uh, desires a noble task. An overseer is a, is a word that can be translated as bishop or presbyter or elder. Uh, our ESV kind of leaves it vague by simply calling it an overseer. It's somebody that functions with that oversight responsibility. So in our way in which we understand it here at Hebron, we call those overseers elders. So this is the responsibilities of an elder. Now before we go through and look at this passage, this will have to do it on your own time, you wanna draw attention to the connection between what the elders are supposed to be like and what the deacons are supposed to be like. The elders are discussed between verses two and seven and the deacons from verses eight through 13. That's the way in which you discover them. And here's what you're gonna find when you look at the what the two jobs are supposed to be like, what elders are supposed to do and what deacons are supposed to do. You're gonna find a tremendous overlap. Basically, what's happening is as we work our way, we're just gonna look at what the elders are supposed to be like. And you find basically the same story, the same description being given for the deacons. That's first observation. The second observation is this. You will find very little information about what the elders or the deacons are supposed to do. What you find is a description 
of who they are. What Paul is interested here is saying this is the character, this is the, this is the godliness of an elder or a deacon. Not so much this is a job description, not so much this is what they're supposed to do, as this is who they are supposed to be. This is what they're supposed to act like. This is their character across the board. So both the elders and the deacons, the leaders of the church, are to have a certain character. Now, you know me, I stand up front. If you're here, part of the church, you recognize me. I am one of the elders of the church. I am a particular elder of the church, the teaching elder, so that means that I do a lot of the, the preaching responsibilities. There are other elders of this church. Many of them are here in your midst. This is a description of what Paul says an elder of the church is supposed to be like. Look in verse two. An overseer must be above reproach the husband of but one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent. An elder is supposed to be above reproach. Now let me clarify this just for a second. Above reproach here does not mean that an elder is supposed to be sinless. Why do we know that? Well, a couple of ways. First, the word itself, above reproach or blameless doesn't mean that there is no culpability, doesn't mean that they never have done anything wrong, doesn't mean that they are sinless. What the word means, blameless, or above reproach, it has roots in the legal community of, of the Greek world at that time. What it means is that there's, there's no public evidence that one would identify against the person. The person is not arrestable uh, based on what they have done. So the above reproach here means that they that not that they have never done anything wrong, but rather that whatever they have done does not rise to a level where they should be arrested. That's what the technical word means. But we also know that it doesn't mean perfect because Paul himself understood himself as an elder and overseer in the church. And we know how Paul viewed himself and recognized his own culpability, his own blameworthiness, his own guilt before God. So the idea that above reproach here somehow means that you are blame, uh, sinless does not what Paul is writing here. Rather, he's saying that an elder must be above reproach. And now I, I take this as a general, general category. An elder must be above reproach. What does that mean? Well, then we have details here. First thing that he says is uh, an elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, what does that mean? That single men are excluded? that widowers are excluded. And a little bit later, we're gonna find that he's supposed to manage his household well, his children well. Does that mean a married guy who doesn't have children is excluded? Is this a gender discussion across the board? I don't think any of those things. Once again, Timothy himself most likely was not married at this point, and he was an elder, he was certainly an overseer. So what does it mean that you are a, a husband of but one wife? What is Paul trying to say there? He is speaking, I think, directly into the community that we find ourselves in, that, that Paul found himself in, the Greco-Roman world at that time period, understood marriage not as a monogamous, a faithful bond between two people. It was highly unlikely that any male at that period would have a wife and not also have a mistress and likely to have some concubines along the side. That was standard practice. 
What Paul is saying here is something very counterintuitive to the time period and frankly becoming more so counterintuitive for our society today as well that a husband, that a elder is one above all else who should demonstrate public faithfulness to his spouse, to his children, to his friends and neighbors, to his church. I think it's hard to identify that Paul is identifying anything here other than above all else, above reproach, means being faithful to those around you. He should be faithful, a husband of, of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. An elder is supposed to be somebody who has self-mastery, who, ha- who can master themselves, has self-control. If you don't have self-control, if you, can't, if you are called to master to lead a church, you certainly have to be able to master yourself. You have to be, have, have some self-control before you go about trying to lead anybody else in these kind of things. Not only are you supposed to have self-control, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not only are you supposed to have self-control, but you also have self-mastery as you interact with other people. My guess is that everybody knows people that are quarrelsome or that when they get into a meeting, they're always being the devil's advocate. They're always tossing out. They always are stirring the pot, something along those lines. Now, sometimes that's helpful in trying to make a decision. I'm not saying you can never do this, but we all know the damage that can happen by having a quarrelsome person in your midst. And so here, not only are you called to have self-control, self-mastery, but an elder is also supposed to have self-control in the way in which he interacts with other people. Not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Now some people have taken this to understand that people who are well off, the rich, are excluded from leadership positions. It certainly doesn't mean that. Um, Paul, later on in this same letter, is going to remind Timothy that money is at the root, the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evils. And most of us know that. Greed is a terrible thing, and it undercuts so much of people's leadership responsibilities and leadership goals and skills. And so greed is not something that we're supposed to... Being rich doesn't either disqualify you or promote or endorse your leadership abilities. Being poor does not disqualify you or promote your leadership responsibilities. It is key that we recognize that we are not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage God's church? This is an easy step from the lesser to the greater. If you can't manage your house, if you can't manage your own family, then how in the world could you possibly go about seeking to manage a family of this size? Uh, One of my great experiences as a leader in the church was when a gentleman came up to me and said, you know what, I I, I have been asked to be an elder here at this church, and I need to, I I need to turn it down. And I said, why was that, Why, why is that? And he said, because of this passage, managing your own household well, my adult children, one of my adult children, has strayed from the faith. And therefore, I think that I'm disqualified by this passage. I was 
so taken by that. I was so touched by this man's desire to be faithful to the word of God. Now, I also took him back to the text, and I said to him, I think that you misunderstand what is being spoken of here. This text does not say that we measure things by the outcome. It rather is a measure of your faithfulness. As your children were growing up, did you engage them in church? Did you teach them the word? Did you put them under the authority of God? And he was able to say, in all honesty, yes, yes, yes. I said, then the outcome of that, the success or failure of that, that's in God's hands. Your daughter is in God's hands. What you're responsible for is managing your household well so that they can be exposed to the gospel message, the very kind of thing that the garrisons here have taken vows so that they would do, to manage their household in such a way as that they their children would come to be exposed to the gospel. If they respond or not, that's the work of God. The next two qualifiers go like this. He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit. Now, this is a, a concern that an elder would be somebody who would be new in the faith and consequently lack the humility that comes with wisdom. Elders are those who are supposed to be above all else wise. And wisdom is marked by a humility that should be visible and should be evident to everyone. Note the fear that Paul has here, that he may fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is the same fear that marks the last one. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. The elder should be thought of well by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. I, I think that Paul identifies these two aspects and the work of Satan in the midst of those two aspects to highlight for us that leadership is constantly under the assault of Satan. So our response is to be praying consistently for the leadership of the church because of the desperate need and the desperate work in which Satan is undercutting the work of leaders in this church. Okay, now having heard that list, does anybody in particular come to mind? Nobody does for me. I look in the mirror every morning. Some of you probably don't think that, but I actually do. I, I, I do, <laughs> start my morning. I look in the mirror every morning, and I don't see this guy. I've got a great group of elders functioning here in the church. I'm looking at a number of them. I'm trying not to look at you, sorry. Uh, I don't see them here either. So is there a possibility that Paul is just putting forward some ideal that we're not supposed to really attain? I don't think so. For deacons as well as elders? Look in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. This is so you know how to behave. Paul expects the leadership of this church to look like that. You should expect the leadership of this church to look like this. Now, why so? 
Paul goes on. So that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the, community, of the truth. It, it is a household of God. The word household here doesn't mean building. It means family. We are expected to be a family, and no one knows the sin, your sin, like your family members. And yet also, no one forgives your sin like your family members. This is the household of God. Every once in a while, we use a cute, tacky phrase. I don't like doing it, but I force it out of me once in a while. Brothers and sisters, we're brothers and sisters. Every time I say that, realize that I work myself up into doing it. But we are brothers and sisters. We are a household of God. No one is supposed to identify my sin, know my sin better, than you guys. No one should be forgiving me. No one should be forgiving the elders of this church more faithfully than you guys. We are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. This is a, a place where God dwells. Not in this mystical, God's everywhere kind of a thing, but in a very tangible, expressive way that God dwells in this, place, in this place with everything that God is, all of his grace, all of his mercy, all of his wisdom and love. We are to be a buttress of the truth. What is a buttress? A buttress is a support. It is something that, that keeps something from eroding, something from falling down. A buttress is something that, that backs it up. This goes back to the first chapter where we talked about the truth is so important, so essential to the gospel. Well, what's the church supposed to be? A buttress of that. We're supposed to, but we're also supposed to be a pillar of the truth. What does a pillar do? A pillar doesn't, doesn't strengthen something. A pillar lifts something up and holds it up high. This church is to, is to hold up high the truth of the gospel message. And how does it do so? In part, through the leadership of this church. And so Paul says, this is what your leadership is supposed to look like. Now once again, is that what it looks like here? Is this how you would speak to me, this level of godliness, this level of faithfulness? If you read the whole chapter and you say to yourself, Paul wants to communicate something here, what is Paul communicating? It's hard not to walk away with the last verses. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. All right, I've been trying to make the point that what Paul is looking for are elders and deacons that exhibit this character, this deep godliness that, that you're not seeing with me, that you're not seeing with our elders, as good as they are, that you're not gonna see as you look around this room. But great is the mystery of this godliness. What is the mystery of this godliness? He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He is proclaimed among the nations. He is believed on in the world. He has been taken up in glory. Who are we talking about? We are talking about Jesus Christ. 
He is the mystery of the godliness. He is that source of godliness that Paul is talking about. He is the, the identification of godliness that every leader has to associate himself in. When you see me, you are supposed to see the godliness of Jesus Christ. When you see the elders who fail on their own so spectacularly to be like this, you are supposed to see the godliness of Jesus Christ. What makes, the faith, what makes this church function? What makes this church, the government of this church, work well? It is not my abilities. It is not the abilities of the church, of the elders. It is the abilities of the godliness of Jesus Christ who fills us, who communicates himself in and through us, who is the essence of everything that we are. This is a call not simply for the deacons and the elders. This is a call for each one of us. The mystery of godliness is Jesus Christ in your life and in mine. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this text, as among others, that speak to the importance of leadership. Lord, we recognize the need for this through the scriptures. We do not wanna do things that are right in our own eyes. We only wanna do that which is right in your eyes. And yet, Lord, the challenge is overwhelming if we are not beset by the gospel message, the godliness of Jesus Christ, which is ours through the faith and blessing and the mercy that he gives to us now and forevermore, we pray, amen.